Welcome to Cast Conversations, a monthly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek, and I'm an Assistant Executive Director for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Today's podcast on cybersecurity is very timely and probably one of the most important podcasts we have produced here at CAS. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. This is a collaborative effort between government and industry to raise awareness about the importance of cybersecurity and to ensure that all Americans have the resources they need to be safe and more secure online. This year, they are emphasizing personal accountability and stressing the importance of taking proactive steps to enhance cybersecurity at home and in the workplace, and I would add our schools. According to the Department of Homeland Security, this year's overarching message, own it, secure it, protect it, focuses on key areas including citizen privacy, consumer devices, and e-commerce security. Just in case we forget to mention it later, during this podcast, you can learn more about the 2019 National Cybersecurity Awareness Month at staysafeonline.org, which is powered by the National Cybersecurity Alliance, and www.dhs.gov, which is the official website of the Department of Homeland Security. When we post this podcast on the CAS website, we will also post links to these websites. The toolkits and information posted here are important and useful not only during the 2019 October National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but throughout the year. Be sure to check out these websites as well as anything else that gets mentioned during this podcast because we are very fortunate to have with us three experts on the topic of cybersecurity, and I am confident that we're going to learn a lot about what we can do and what can go wrong, as well as how to keep ourselves and our school communities safe. So let's get started. First of all, I would like to introduce Doug Casey, who is a returning podcast guest. Doug serves as the Executive Director for the Connecticut State Commission for Educational Technology, CET. In that role, he designs and manages the State Educational Technology Plan to help ensure the successful integration of technology in Connecticut schools, libraries, universities, and towns. Throughout its 20-year history, the Commission has launched programs that include the Connecticut Education Network and Research It and the statewide digital library formerly known as ICON. Before coming to the state, Doug was the Director of Technology and Privacy for the Capital Region Education Network, or CREC. He began his career as a middle school English teacher and has served in a wide diversity of organizations from the Smithsonian's Office of Education and the U.S. House of Representatives to national security agencies. Welcome, Doug. Thanks so much, Rosie. With Doug, we also have Roberta Pratt. Roberta serves as the Chief Information Officer for the East Hartford Board of Education and the Town of East Hartford. Her role is a shared resource for the town and the Board of Education that was developed as a result of a ransomware attack on East Hartford Board of Education in 2018. Cybersecurity is the main focus for Roberta and her team in both organizations. Finding operationally efficient solutions and delivering leading-edge technologies for the students and residents of East Hartford is a vision for both technology departments. Before coming to East Hartford, Roberta was the Director of Technology for the new Milford Board of Education. She began her career as a network technician for the new Britain Board of Education. Welcome, Roberta. Thank you, Rosie. And also joining us today is Ryan Kashandi. 
Ryan is the director of the Connecticut Education Network, CEN, the internet service provider network built for and dedicated to community anchor institutions within the state of Connecticut. In his role, Ryan oversees the direction and operation activities of CEN, who provides secure, high-capacity internet and value-added services to over 550 members, including K-12, higher ed, library, state, and municipal governments, healthcare, and open access members. In addition, Ryan also represents CEN, its members both regionally and nationally through services on the board of directors for NIREN as an Internet 2 connector principal and advisor to the Northern Crossroads Knox, a member board of directors for the Quilt, and the vice chair for the Quilt CEO Roundtable. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great, thank you. I would like to begin by asking the three of you to define cybersecurity. We talk about it, but what is cybersecurity and why is it or should it be so important to school administrators and their pre-K through 12 school communities? Well, I'll jump in and provide a really high level definition because I know we'll go into details later, but I'd just say that cybersecurity is a set of practices and really a mindset around protecting anything that's digital, which as we'll probably talk about, includes a lot of different aspects of schools. Right. Anything else you want to add? Uh, sure, a little bit beyond that. It's you know systems, networks, programs, and most importantly, people. You know, you're protecting folks from these kind of digital attacks, and they're really aimed at uh, either accessing or changing or even destroying sensitive information that could be used for extortion or just plain old disruption. I would also add that it's educating members of the community. It's educating people on what will happen on budgets that need to be pushed through for something that no one ever sees. They just use. Great. Thank you. So, Doug, cybersecurity may seem like a daunting topic for school and district leaders, especially those who do not see themselves as experts in technology. What recommendations do you have for school leaders in this area? The two big milestone recommendations that I always offer up are it is a leadership issue. So cybersecurity is not just something that the technology department needs to manage on behalf of everybody else in the school or the district. It really is a leadership concern in the same way that leaders should be thinking about things like the safety of transportation or other operational concerns, finance and human resources, these are all high level cabinet level concerns and cybersecurity should be right in there with them. That said, many superintendents and principals and other leaders might feel a little overwhelmed because it seems like there are a lot of acronyms and buzzwords and technology may seem like something that is difficult to get their heads wrapped around and, and so I would follow up that sort of feeling of maybe a little overwhelmed with it's okay there are lots of resources that are out there the recommendation that I always give is have a system have a program in place and there are plenty of exemplars that are out there from COSIN's trusted learning environment to various very technical sets of controls from CIS and NIST and other acronyms, but uh, suffice it to say, it's something that you need to take ownership of as leaders, but there are plenty of resources out there. Is there a cheat sheet for all of the acronyms that you have? Well, you promised to put up some links <laughs> after the website. I did, I did, over, and so we will do that. <laughs> yeah, we will certainly equip you with plenty of links, and I think my recommendation is, you know, probably don't overwhelm yourself. Choose one 
set of frameworks and, and get your head wrapped around it and you will be in good shape and you're not alone. There are plenty of other folks out there who are wrestling with the exact same challenges that you are. I'm sure. So it's kind of like think big, but start small, right? And exactly. Then. Start somewhere. And yeah. you're going to find out as you go through looking at the frameworks that you're already doing a lot of good work. Cool. Okay. So Ryan, given your oversight of Connecticut's broadband network, what types of attacks are you seeing on schools these days? From the context of a service provider, we can only see so much inside of an actual district, right? So we see internet traffic and things that are coming in over the internet, inbound, or sometimes leaving a school district. Um, and the largest being basically denial of service attacks. And this is where an attacker will try and flood a target machine or IP address with so much traffic that it basically suspends it, renders it inoperable, so it just can't function for whatever reason. This is by far the most prevalent type of attack that we see on the school districts, literally daily, and we're over 750 and counting for this calendar year. Um, 700 and how many? Over 750 this calendar year. And at this rate, we'll probably get really close to about 1,000. They literally happen every day. It's not like every district gets attacked every day, but with all the districts connected, as well as CN's more broad network of municipal, state government, uh, higher and libraries, these things happen. And from an internet service provider, these are one of the things that we can see and have actual real insights into as well as do something about. And in our case, and I don't want to you know, jump too far ahead, we actually do do something about this to make sure that schools don't feel the full brunt of these kinds of attacks and that we tamp them down as quickly as possible. So what is the Connecticut Education Network doing to protect schools and how might these services expand in the future? Sure. So as I alluded to, we do do something about DDoS attacks, and those denial services happen, like I said, every day. And we, a number of years ago, has installed a DDoS mitigation system, so that way these attacks can get recognized on the network, and there's certain signatures that will get tripped so to recognize these attacks and basically tamp them down before they ever really get out of control and hurt a district or shut down their network entirely from the internet, right? So... When they come in, it's a huge flood of of traffic. Our system will see it within about 90 seconds, start shutting it down right away. So that way the school and and someone like Roberta in a district will basically get an email from us saying, first one is your network is being attacked right now and CNN is mitigating this attack. And when it's over, which varies in length and duration sometimes, you'll get a report saying this is what the attack looked like. And there's a lot of detail in there. The nature of those things are distributed denial of service attacks. That's why they're called DDoSs. So these things are coming from all over the place. You know, zombie machines that are just Mm -hmm. enabled and triggered to basically flood traffic at a single target address, trying to shut it down for any number of reasons. Um, So that's the biggest one that we, I think, have made a difference on and and continue to make a difference on. But in the future, we see more opportunity there to help out districts with managed security services We know some really struggle with trying to get programs going where, as Doug said before, this is is cultural. How do they get started with training, not only for their IT professionals so they know how to respond to certain things, but even on the non-IT professional side. So what academics or administrators are in a system, to what messaging do they need so that way they can make a difference with just basic cyber hygiene. You know, being aware and training people on how to react to certain things and basically just have a plan. Other things we do, there's firewall services that, uh, again, we see this as a, as a huge advantage to some of the districts that we can help out where uh, their current devices may be old or undersized. Us being a uh, large provider of background can, can support a larger virtual firewall in a context that 
almost any district couldn't afford individually, but collectively could make it much more economical to have a, a virtual slice of one of our firewalls and actually get real performance out of that thing. Other aspects of that, I guess, are the model that uh, I would highlight as CEN's model is in, in most cases, we are going to add uh, whatever feature or product or service that we can um, at no additional cost. And if there is a cost, it's cost recovery. There's no profit margin that we're going after here. It's whatever the service is, plus the administrative overhead of running it, divided by however many people are consuming it. So it's a different kind of use case in, in, in our environment where it's really just trying to better the environment overall and, and make a difference and you know, let somebody else worry about profit because um, it's really just not in our equation. Wow. So, Roberta, for a person like you, when you get a note from CEN, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, oh man, I would just panic. What goes through your mind because you as a district leader, I know, have had a situation where this did happen. So how do you protect yourself against the cyber attacks? But even before we get into that, tell us about what happened to you and how you felt, I think, when you got the note from CEN, and then we'll talk about how to protect yourself. So tell us about your situation. So I've actually lived through this twice. The first time was four years ago. And at that time, there were no measures in place. And so we were down for business for two or three days. We worked with SEN. They helped us, but we had to go through everyone that we needed to contact, and we had to let them know what had happened so that they would take us off the blacklist. Recently, as three weeks ago, we had another DDoS attack, and this time SEN was prepared. They told us that we had one. We didn't even know it. And then they had mitigated it by the time we actually had the note. So working with partners, trusting them, understanding what their role is, what your role is, what do you need to do. I think educating your members, everybody from town officials to your staff is really important. East Hartford was hit with a ransomware attack in 2018. That was just before I came. I can tell you that they had in place some measures, but not all of them. Backups, 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 that's huge Mm -hmm. in recovery. No one wants to hear, do you want to spend money on backups? They want the devices in their hands. So I think that that's where there's kind of a balance that you have to play risk and what do you need for the district. So if you have a good system, as you were talking about, Doug, and if you have things in play and you have partners like SEN, you will get through something. It's no longer protecting yourself so that you never get attacked. It's knowing what you're going to do, an incident plan, a disaster recovery plan, because we are all going to be attacked. Wow. What a scary thing. Now, I'm sitting here thinking that there's probably people like me who don't really understand what happens when ransomware attack happens. I mean, what are the symptoms? I know you'll get a note from Ryan over here, but what's happening to the people in your organization, in the school district or in the town when that happens? What? So there, there's two different sides of that, so, uh, and not to uh, mix them. So there's the DDoS attack, which is a denial of service, which is a flood of traffic. In ransomware, where that can come in and, and well, typically it's email-based, uh, but it's not always, um, where somebody's literally clicking on a link and going to a site that could lock up the machine and even the drives behind it. So two different types of attacks all together. CN can help with the DDoS attack stuff, uh, and we already do. The ransomware uh, side of the house is um, one that we're hoping to help with more through programmatic changes in the school and learning and training, and that's where the real planning comes in place is the folks that click on links uh, innocently or don't recognize that there may be a bad one there are really the folks you're looking to educate as to how to recognize these types of emails that come in that make it look suspect, right? 
Um, everybody knows what you know some sort of spam of traditional mail looks like. You immediately rip it up and throw it out. You don't need another credit card from XYZ company. <laughs> right. You did right. not win the publisher clearing house or whatever. <laughs> even it though was. you wanted to. Right, even though you wanted was. So people so a lot of those natural instincts of what you do in a traditional manner actually translate into IT pretty well. But how are you updating your own context to recognize, yeah, this this email just doesn't feel right. Your gut usually serves you pretty well is to go with your gut, delete that thing, or even notify your IT professional if it's a really good one. But for the most part, you know, just Trust your gut, delete it. If it's persistent, that's when I would actually say probably notify your IT professional. But for the most part, it's really an all-encompassing cultural shift, if you will. Your IT professionals can learn how to react and, and better prepare for these things through you know, disaster recovery planning or incident response planning, but it's really not their job to protect every single individual who's on their campus or in their system. You know, Just knowing how to use your machine and what you should and should not be clicking on, that's really you know, personal responsibility and self-reliance and what should I be doing here and, and what awareness should I have about just kind of basics of using technology nowadays. And that's not only from the, I'd say the educators or, or the administration, but it's even what are you teaching these students? Because these kids have digital devices in their hands every day, almost regardless of age at this point. Right. And I've got three little kids, the amount of stuff that they can just pick up on with ease is absolutely astounding. So what are you doing to train even those kids as to what should you be doing, what should you be clicking on? which you do not be clicking on it. I think it's really important, too, that we're kind of all in this together. Most of the actors are not working, and we call them the bad actors, are not working from within the boundaries of the United States. So when we help people and we train them and we educate them, our tech teams, our staff members, our students, we're helping them at home as well because this is everywhere. There's no escaping it. So I think you're right. You have to train your tech team. You have to educate your staff members. You have to have good resources in place, partners. We've talked about some of the school districts that can't afford full tech teams. I mean, with budgets today, it's difficult trying to talk to board of eds, town councils, mayors, superintendents. You quickly become aware that it's a balancing act of how are you teaching students, how are you going to fund what you need for curriculum, and how are you going to keep your network safe, which is equally important today. So I think there's a whole lot that goes into it, and we're looking to be able to help some of the smaller communities so that things like we've seen in the paper over the last couple of years don't, don't become more rampant, but instead we're able to mitigate a lot of them. I, and I would echo everything that uh, Roberta and Ryan shared with one addition, which is if you think about training, it's really a culture, and it's also contextually it's really important. So I think... Districts are used to having this sort of onslaught of annual trainings, and you sort of try to front load them during convocation in the beginning of the year, and then you're like, whew, we're done, you know, no more training. Well, you know, you wouldn't do that in a classroom. You sort of reiterate best practices and lessons learned, and I think it's important to do that too with anything that's digital. So that, for example, if you're rolling out a new system, that's related to, say, staff evaluation or IEPs or some other functionality of running a school or running a classroom, take the opportunity. If it's a digital, part of this is a mm-hmm. digital conversation, reiterate those best practices. Okay, step one, everybody, we're going to log on to the new system. And remember, 
don't write down your password and post it on your monitor. <laughs> and don't ever share a password with a colleague, no matter how close you are with them. I mean, we sort of laugh about these things, but when it's contextual and embedded right into professional development and even coaching, it just becomes part of your thinking and your mindset. That's a really good point. I have another question, and that is because I've done this before. What happens, or what should we tell people, when you open something and you click on it that you know gut level that you shouldn't be, but you did, what should we help people understand that they should be doing in that situation? I would say the first thing is notify your tech team so that they can start following the processes and seeing what it was that you clicked on. If they have hosted email, they can block the domain. There's a lot of things that we can do if it's not ransomware to help clean up the network by just notifying the tech team. And that goes to making sure that they're well-trained as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and don't be bashful. Tell them right away, accidents happen. These things are going to happen. It's Mm -hmm. all about how you react to a lot of those things because what's done is done, right? Right. And typically, if they've got good processes in place, you can get ahead of those things and hopefully no harm, no foul, right? It's more of an education thing saying, please don't do that again. You know, the, the really simple ones, if you know you've gone to a site that may have skim your password is go back to the actual site, change your password right away. So that way they can't get into the rest of your account. But it really turns into a timing thing. So the quicker you can notify is the quicker you can respond. If you sit on it for a day or two, there's not much you can do. And, And think of that like if you lost your credit card. As soon as you know that you lost that thing, you should be calling your credit card company saying, I lost my card, please suspend the activity, give me another account, right? Mm -hmm. It's not all that dissimilar in the IT world where you know you've lost your credential, notify the proper authority in this case, which is hopefully your IT lead, and say, yep, uh, this just happened, what do I do? Right, and then change your password. Just like you would, you grip up your- Nine times out of 10, that's one of the best practices right away, is go back into the actual system, change your password, and just follow the good password guidelines, you know, like upper, lower, you know, all that stuff. And, and strong passwords should be enforced everywhere, hopefully. But if not, that, that's another easy mm-hmm. one that can heighten your security a little bit. I think you, you mentioned a really good point too, Ryan. You should be able to do that without fear because we're trying to stop something before happening. Mm-hmm. Everyone makes mistakes. We make them every single day. We're human. So if you've done something better to just let someone know. Well, and sometimes you don't even know till you, you click on it, and then you go, oh my gosh, what did I just do? It's hard to tell yeah, whether it's legit or it's not legit. Well, like I said, your, your gut reaction will most likely serve you pretty well. Not everybody has that level of instinct, right? But you will have that, oh my goodness, kind of moment, and you'll even feel yourself go flush a little bit. At that point, just pick up the phone. Don't email your IT professional. Pick up the phone, make a phone call, and say, look, I think I just did something bad, and you know they should be able to help you. So there's a lot of different people talking about things you should do, things you shouldn't do. A lot of misconceptions probably out there that are circulating around cybersecurity. Can you talk about some of those and how can people deal with those? Well, I mentioned one already and that is that this is a technology department issue. It's an entire culture, it's an entire district building issue. I think the other maybe misconception is, uh, or at least expanding our mindset around this, is that, that this is computers and, and smart boards and that sort of thing. We really need to think beyond that. Virtually everything in a building at this point is internet enabled, right? We've probably heard the term internet of things. So we're wearing devices, our light bulbs are connected to the internet, our security systems are connected to the internet. A brief story I'll share when I was uh, director of technology at Crack, 
And we weren't doing a very good job of advocating for having a backup generator. Now, this isn't cybersecurity. What we were trying to do is paint a picture of what happens if everything runs out of power, right? And so if you equate that with what happens if everything gets attacked. And when we finally went and did the due diligence and presented this to leadership and said, well, here's what happens if everything is disconnected from the internet, i.e. say a cyber attack. And it was not just our computers and classrooms, but it was our human resources system, our phone system, the ability to pay people, kind of important. Uh, <laughs> just a little bit, right, yeah. Our transportation <laughs> system, our food system, kids won't eat. I mean, you start going down the road and it was sort of, we got through half the list and it was like, got it, here's your generator. So I think you mm -hmm. equate that with going back to that sort of leadership issue of, I would encourage district leaders and, and building administrators to be thinking about everything that is internet enabled and the risk that that poses if those stores of data and operational systems get compromised it can be absolutely devastating. So again, not to scare people, but just to say this is really serious and it absolutely warrants the highest levels of attention and resource allocation from a leadership perspective. Great, so let's talk resources. We've talked about the need for training, the need to educate yourself. So what kinds of resources, you mentioned a few, and I know that we'll probably be talking about some of those acronyms, but what would you guys suggest would be great things for administrators to delve into and use to help them and their staff stay safe? There's a course through COSIN, which is one of the acronyms. <laughs> um, it's a COSIN it's a, stands for? The Consortium of School Networking. Thank Think you. of it as the professional, national professional network for directors of technology at the K-12 level. Okay, thank you. Thank you, yes. <laughs> and they have a kettle program, which is Certified Educational Technology Leaders. And in that program, once you go through it, you learn how to talk to administrators, cabinet level, in a language that they're going to understand. Because I think sometimes that's some of the hardest things is for people to understand, quote unquote, geek speak. You learn how to talk to superintendents and town councils. So I think that that's really helpful for technology leaders to get into a course like that that helps them to be able to communicate with other cabinet level members and to really be able to deliver their message in a language that's clear. I mean, from my perspective, and Roberta's heard me say this, and she's even involved in trying to figure out how we're going to take this to the next level, you know, CEN is a general resource. We will always help out a member in a pinch, especially if we have resources at our disposal to do so. The basic example I always give is our firewall services are there running in the background. If a district was ever in a pinch and their local firewall was not able to even withstand the 90 seconds of a DDoS attack that we committed it against, and they're in trouble, we would always basically figure out how to get them right side up, provide the service at no additional cost so that money is not a problem, and we'll give you a, a runway of you know three to six months, is that typically in that period you can identify whatever you need to do, do intra-district, especially with a firewall, to you know either go buy your own or subscribe to ours. Either way, we're not in this to make money. The margin is you know, not required for profit. We just want the districts to be right-sized and right-side up if an attack ever happens. So do people contact you, or how do they go about? There are any number of ways. So the easiest way is, is just pick up the phone and call me, one of their member relations leads, put in a ticket with the help desk. Most of the district leads know how to get a hold of us one way or another. <laughs> They'll um, find you. <laughs> and, you know, we I, do. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the traditional means of you know email or, or write a ticket is fine, but nothing ever is just pick up the phone. We'll try and figure out a way to do it. You know, the, the initiative that I kind of alluded to is that 
with some of these schools getting attacked with you know ransomware and other things, is how can we play a meaningful role in, I'd say, changing the dynamic of what help looks like, where there are a number of well-trained IT professionals inside of the human network that CEN connects. How do we have a call to action to have your colleagues from neighboring towns or districts come and converge on an area that's in trouble just by making a phone call and saying, look, we're in trouble, we just got ransomware, we need some additional hands just to roll up their sleeves and get involved because it's only one or two people in that district, which can be absolutely daunting. You know, where do you start? So if there's a way that we can make a meaningful difference in those districts by having folks geographically kind of warming the bench that if they ever needed help, just make the phone call. And we'll enact our advisory council, say this is a situation, and get people involved. That way they know that it's their colleagues doing this, it's trusted people, going to get sold a ball of wax. It's just a friend in need is a friend indeed, right? You can make a phone call. We're happy to facilitate this. It's not even us doing it. It's just enabling your community members to do it. And you know, there are some issues you need to work with through legal, but assuming you get the lawyers out of the way and the practical technicians in there to help, this is totally doable. If you ever do get attacked that with something that big, there's a relatively new unit inside of the state of Connecticut called CTIC. It's the Connecticut Intelligence Center. It's yet another one of those acronyms. That if you, CTIC? CTIC, yes, yeah, CTIC. It's part of the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security. Security. It's a fusion center between Homeland Security, the local state police chapters that do it, as well as the Cyber Crimes Division. They all talk to each other. So this is one of those newer kind of quasi, I don't know, agencies, whatever to call it, that they're trying to share proper information with local authorities so that way if somebody's in trouble, the information doesn't stay siloed. It goes to east-west to other folks that need to know as well as can help. So we've talked about trying to make sure that we're preventing the attacks, but you don't know that unless you're constantly testing your network. And other agencies, Department of Homeland Security, it's MSISAC, which we can give you the link to, will do vulnerability tests free three times a year to educational environments. So you can test yourself. You have someone else outside testing. They may not go as thorough as a paid one, but for some districts that might be all that they can afford. There's great resources out there. Okay, so could you say that resource one more time, and then we'll make sure that we post that one as well? Sure. It's MS-ISAC, MS-ISAC. Okay. It stands for the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and it's. And I'm glad you brought it up, Roberta. And, you know, it underscores the fact that, going back to an earlier point, is there are many frameworks out there and sort of program frameworks that will get you started and a lot of great free resources. So you mentioned the assessments, but the MSI SAC also, uh, I would encourage everybody listening, if you're a technology specialist, to subscribe. If you're a leader, encourage your tech folks to subscribe. MSI SAC takes a look at national and regional trends and will notify you if there are new vulnerabilities and risks coming out. So you know what to look for, to your point earlier, Roberta. Let's get ahead of it, right? There's getting ahead of it, there's cleaning up afterward, and then there's sort of in the midst of it, what are you doing? But I think the more that you can do to be aware of existing threats, the better. And it works both ways. If folks are going through a particular challenge or being attacked by something that hasn't been seen before, sharing that out with MSISAC allows them to get the word out immediately. There's so many parallels to the physical security as we think about, you know, in the same way that, especially acutely within Connecticut, after Sandy Hook, as we thought about physical security, you know, and we can have all the physical security 
that technology can afford. But if we have a staff person who's jarring the door open or opening up the door for a visitor without asking for credentials or taking them through the proper protocols for getting them in safely, then all bets are off. And it's the same thing with cybersecurity. Your weakest link may well be someone who's sitting in accounts payable, accounts receivable, your nurse's office. Everybody is part of this culture and part of the mindset for keeping things safe. So watch your accountants and your nurses. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> well, in all seriousness, yeah, though, but, I mean, but, it's simple, a little bit of everybody. But, yeah, simple, it's, simple things like, you know, if your business office, and we all want to be sort of transparent and helpful to our communities, if you've got everybody's email address on your business office and it's easy for somebody to email all those people in the middle of the summer, find out really quickly from the out-of-office replies who's out-of-office, and then you start to, you know, call up individual people and say, oh, you know, I know so-and-so is out of the office and they said that they could help me with so-and-so. So there's this, the technology aspect of it, but cybersecurity really sort of crosses over into this human engineering and there's a fine line between cybersecurity and criminal justice, as you'll find in any program that's out there. There's a good dose of both. So I think training not only for what you're seeing on a screen, but what's coming in through your telephone and even coming through physical mail. True. And uh, to back up, so MSISEC is part of the CIS, the Center for Internet Security, and they, they have tools, they have resources, mm-hmm. they've got best practices that they share openly. It's another one that could complement the COSIN that Roberto already mentioned earlier. Another one is NIST, and that's the National Institute for Standards and Technology, right? They've got another very mature framework that with five core principles and even sub-tiers in there that from kind of the identify and protect all the way to, you know, how do you remediate if something actually happens. So there are some very well-known frameworks that are out there that, you know, a lot of them are just available for free. Um, And there's plenty of training around that so that way almost anybody who's a complete novice can be brought up to a highly proficient level in any of those things. The COSIN Trusted Leaders mm-hmm. Framework, the assessment takes all of seven minutes to fill out. So if you could spend seven minutes of your day filling out a questionnaire as a leader within a district that's a non-technical leader, as well as do it with your IT professional and see what differences you get in this assessment of ranking from you know one of kind of need to do this to four of we've taken care of this, it'd be interesting to see if you have the same results from a technical and a non-technical perspective. Hmm. It's all of seven minutes. You'd probably spend more time comparing like seven days of, oh my goodness, I didn't think it was this. Mm-hmm. And that's a really easy framework that'll take you through not only the technical side of that from literally IT, but you know, business programmatic all the way through. So it's all encompassing and it's a good overview of what you should be thinking about inside of a district. And CIS and NIST, being a little bit more familiar with those frameworks, NIST is so huge it's almost daunting, but their explanations are actually really good, and the training around that is, I, I think, exceptional, quite frankly. And if, for folks that need help with those larger frameworks and perhaps more complicated, a technology training provider like SANS, it's SANS.org, well recognized in the industry as having cybersecurity training, double-digit years easy, I don't even know, probably 20 or something, but their portfolio is huge, and again, they can take somebody from a complete novice to a working professional and really knowing how to implement these things. So the resources are, plenty of them are out there in abundance. They're plenty, not to be overwhelmed, start with one and and go through it. And like Ryan said, this should be a conversation. It should be part of a very interactive discussion about where are you strong, where are you weak, be honest about it and start out. I think the other thing that you touched on earlier, Ryan, is the 
human network that we have in Connecticut. And I think, obviously, you don't want to be necessarily sharing weaknesses with the entire world, but I think having some candid conversations with folks within the educational community and to tap resources, uh, best practices, I think collectively we are really, really strong. The enemy wants to separate us and break us, and I think working together, there's a lot of strength there. And don't you meet with IT directors from around the, the state and have different groups of with users and different leaders from districts that are working on IT issues? Well, the commission meets quarterly, and we always welcome public attendees to come <laughs> in, sit in, offer, offer their own insights. We have a couple of advisory councils within the Commission for Education Technology. I know CEN has several advisory councils as well, so I think there's that network. A number of RUSCs have technology councils that convene several times a year, and I think they do a really nice job of convening folks. And certainly there are national and regional technology events where people can kind of go and immerse themselves in best practices, do all that good networking to connect up with birds of a feather so that they're leaving stronger than when they came in. We have a perfect example, actually, not that I'm plugging for this, but the SEN annual event is huge because vendors are there and you can walk through and see what they're offering and there's usually really good conversation, good presentations. I just wanted to follow up too, I was thinking about this, Uh, 2018 Department of Administrative Services put up a cybersecurity grouping of templates that we can all use. So if you are overwhelmed with NIST, which it can be to start, or SANS, which is phenomenal but expensive, um, you can go right to the state site and get a template for incident response plan, disaster recovery plan, and then kind of mold it into what you need to start anyway, so you have a place to start before you start looking at some of the other. Yeah, and those frameworks are fairly um, high level and somewhat generic. You have to tailor them to your environment because not everybody's doing everything the same way. You know, somewhat of a, to take off on what Roberta said is that during our annual conference, you hear from your peers about what they're doing. These are not vendor pitches. The vendors are there supporting and sponsoring and sitting on panels, but you'll hear from your colleagues about how they've addressed certain issues in their districts or at their university or at their, you know, inside a municipal government or state government. Folks float around, they're free to go from session to session. Somewhat alongside of that is that this year we're doing, for the first time anyway, an expanded program where day one is more training. And this is training tailored to what we hear from our advisory councils and our community as what is needed. And we try and take action on anything that we hear about on that. And Roberta's actually involved in planning some of that stuff. Cool. So when is this conference? So May 7th and 8th this year at the... Next year. Sorry, next, next year. year technically. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's like, already feels like, it's like less than a year away. Yeah, it's already it's feels just, like yeah. in the academic year, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, May 7th and 8th. Uh, the 7th is at the Marriott downtown right next to the convention center. And the 8th, uh, what Roberta was more referring to when she spoke, is the kind of like the main event. And that's when we have... Uh, last year was over 600 folks show up from our entire member constituent base uh, and vendors supporting it um, and it's a full day event and this year the goal really is to complement that with more training hardcore training in either three or six hour session slots that way if there is technology specific training we can get that into the district IT leads needs or if there's even non-technical training that needs to happen to superintendents about what should they be asking or you know level of awareness um, we're happy to host that and develop tailored programming around that as well cool
So the other piece I was thinking about is the students. We haven't really talked about what can we do to prepare the students. I know we've talked before, Doug, in a different podcast about the ISTE, International Society of Technology and Education Standards. So that would be a resource that people could go to to find out things that they could do with students. Anything else that we should be thinking about as far as students and cyber attacks and training for them? I think starting with ISTE is, is a great place to be. Those are digital learning standards, broad-based, so everything from being a good digital citizen and treating your peers respectfully online, that sort of good cyber behavior, and being a, a strong communicator and collaborator. But woven into all that is good, as, as we lovingly refer to cyber hygiene, right? And I think kids can be very quick with technology, not always necessarily using their second system of slowing down and assessing what they're about to do. And, and for that matter, adults can too. So I think based on the evidence that we've seen to support that theory, so I think really integrating the best practices in cybersecurity into teaching and learning is, is absolutely key. And encouraging kids to share their own experiences and be honest about it. I think when kids teach each other, it's a powerful thing. Kids can, can teach us adults a thing or two as well. So I think ISTE is important, and it's a great place to depart when you're looking at integrating cybersecurity into the classroom. Getting back to that framework, the Trusted Learning Environment framework has five pillars, and one of those pillars is classroom. It's not training, it's classroom. So as you're functioning in your digital classroom, where we've got one-to-one programs all over the place, 75% of our high schools in the state have one-to-one programs, kids are using technology all the time, bake it right into lesson plans, push it right into, you know, friendly reminders not to share passwords. We've seen plenty of bad scenarios when kids do that, and then, well, you know, spare you the details, but I think it's a way of naturally pushing in cybersecurity into the classroom so it just becomes part of teaching and learning. Yeah, and I'd add to that, so again, since I have three little kids, the permanency of the stuff that you put online. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because they grow up with it, it's different culturally than, say, the previous generation where, you know, it was something new. Now it's just, it's all-encompassing. So I don't know if there's a full appreciation by the the next generation of, of when you're putting and posting certain photos or messages or what the real implications are that beyond just that one moment in teaching the kind of the importance of, like Doug said, just pause and think about just for a moment what's actually going on and how this may have a little bit more broad implication than what you're just kind of doing in the moment. That can be for adults as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Quite a bit. Um, <laughs> think before you hit send. Right. Yes. I think, sure. too, if we can get mm-hmm. them engaged, if we can get students engaged in meaningful ways to use devices, coding has been phenomenal mm-hmm. for kids. They mm-hmm. love it. They get to spend time. But have them become accountable and responsible. They don't want someone to ruin their program. Teach them not to ruin anyone else's programs. So I think getting them engaged, sometimes we're a little intimidated by how quickly they pick up and we don't. But that's not a bad thing necessarily. This is their world now. Yeah, and it's, it's, I go back to early and often, right? It's just right. get them early as you can. I mean, not too early. And it just often these are persistent touches that, you know, somebody needs some context and some care and feeding to make sure that they're doing the right thing along the way. To Roberta, your, your comment made me think about another point, which is computer science and coding. And I think quite often we too narrowly define computer science to be just coding. 
you know, making an app, right? Which is great. It's mm-hmm. sort of like shooting a basket and it goes through the net and it's immediate gratification and, and kids, you know, hopefully get hooked. <clears throat> but there's so many different aspects of computer science that folks like us who have been in the business for a few mm-hmm. years will attest to. There's network engineering and there's obviously hardware aspects of it and there's material science and et cetera, et cetera. But a big area of computer science is cybersecurity. And as I kind of intimated earlier, it is not all just ones and zeros and and sort of propeller head types of stuff. A lot of it is just good critical thinking. It blends over into criminal justice. So we need kids who are, everybody needs to have good cyber hygiene, right? But we also need kids to be thinking about careers in cybersecurity because there will be a growing need for those kids. So there, and there are plenty of curriculum resources for any teachers and principals who are listening to this and are wondering how do we take those kids who are really on fire for this stuff. There's plenty of curriculum resources that we can share to post on your website. And, and even in higher education, you know, one particular program that the U.S. government offers is a scholarship for service. So kids can get their tuition offset by a commitment to serve as a cybersecurity professional. So there are not just great curriculum resources, but pathways to careers that are very defined and much needed. So keep that in mind. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for mentioning that. So along with everything that we've said today, how can we, the state of Connecticut, do a better job of protecting schools and ourselves against cyber attacks? I would say by realizing that we are all in this together. I think what Ryan was talking about earlier that there are resources within our state, within our own community, that we can share, we can help each other. Trying to do this alone for some systems is not gonna work. There's not enough people, not enough resources, not enough funds, and some systems are so big that they have a hard time figuring out exactly what it is they need to do. So if we work together, we use our resources such as SEN, Doug's Connecticut Educational Technology, there's a lot of things out there for us and we just need to be able to take advantage of them and I think vetting out the vendors that we use is really really important. A good dose of common sense goes a long way too. <laughs> you know, I think you've been, we've talked about some bad actors and folks coming in from the outside but I think having really good processes internally is important. One quick example that I'll give is to be doing an audit every year of who's got access to your systems. So in addition to vulnerabilities coming in from the outside, you've got vulnerabilities of sharing things outward. If you've taken a look at your PowerSchool user list recently, who's got super admin rights, who shouldn't? Who doesn't work at the district anymore? You should shut their account down like the moment they walk out the door. Now, as Ryan said earlier, no shame, you know, take care of it now. But I think this goes back to some of the issues earlier of needing to take ownership of it at a leadership level. A principal, uh, she or he should be thinking about, wow, who's got access to my students' data? And take a look at the Power School or IEP Direct or the business office, who's got access to Munis. All those things mm-hmm. are really easy, low-hanging fruit to clean up immediately to reduce that risk of Uh, sharing data or getting breached by data when you really don't need to. I'll add on to that, and it's kind of much of the same, but it's really, some of this is policies, like you need to have the right policies, procedures Mm -hmm. in place. You know, procedures, practice, and practice, and practice. You can never practice enough for anything. Uh, You only get better by doing it more and more. 
You know, I get notes saying that my kids went through fire drills today. That's done for a reason. It's not like they're having cybersecurity practice. That's just not culturally where we're at yet. But, you know, at some point you have to practice these things and have a plan. Start with a plan. It doesn't have to be a full blown, you know, all encompassing plan, but even just a basic one. You can reuse some of the templates you already have for communications around if an incident happens in school, this is what you say to parents, this is what you say to your board, and this is what you say to the newspapers. Clamming up and saying that you have no plan or just clamming up in general will kind of almost reveal it like you have no plan. You need to prepare for these things. They're going to happen. It's just kind of where we are in, in society today. It's not all doom and gloom. It's just, you know, be as proactive as you can and react as well as you can. In some ways, educators are perfectly positioned to be really good with cybersecurity because they know how to teach. Right. And so True. much of it is training people in good behavior. If you take response to intervention, we've got tier one, tier two, tier three, mm-hmm. right? Tier one is everybody. Once you get to tier three, you're going back to the usual suspects who keep clicking <laughs> on links. And, those are the people and, that and we know who they are. <laughs> exactly. Not to make light of uh, educational challenges, but I think listeners should feel empowered by their ability to determine what needs to be learned and how to teach it. And they can tap on all those great free resources that we talked about to start uh, today and realize that they're probably already doing some good things and they can do some other things better. Wow, so thank you. I, I knew I was going to learn a lot from you guys, and I think, number one, it's, it's to start today. Just like you said, start with something and take it from there. I also, listening to you, I heard, be vigilant. You know, like it's not any different than fire drills or, you know, security drills that we do now, but be vigilant, and if you see something, say something. I mean, I think that's important. But even more important, what I heard was, we're all in this together. And I'm glad that you guys came here to share this and share these resources with everyone because I learned a lot just sitting here talking with you. So thank you all for being here today. The conversation was very informative. And as we said at the beginning of this podcast, not only is it important to draw awareness to the issue of cybersecurity during October, the National Cybersecurity Month, but this is something that policymakers, administrators, educators, and on a personal level, all of us need to be thinking about every single day. We all need to educate ourselves on the issues of cyber attacks and take the steps necessary to protect ourselves and stay safe. So thank you very much for this conversation. I also want to remind our listeners that they can follow the work of the Connecticut State Commission for Education Technology, CET, at www.ctgov slash ctedtech and the CT Education Networks, CEN, at www.ctedunet.net. Now, I know I just messed this up, but don't worry about it. <laughs> to, our listeners, no, to our listeners, don't worry about it because we will have these posted for you on our website. Again, thank you, Doug, Roberta, and Ryan so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.